Well, hey, good morning, everybody who's here. Good morning, everybody who's online right now. Good morning, everybody who's going to watch this sermon on Wednesday at like 1141 in the morning, no matter when you watch it or where you are right now. Uh, it's great to be with you. And I'm just grateful for that time of worship. Um, it is good to have different ways to help think about truths of Scripture. And a really helpful way, an important way for me and throughout the Bible. I mean, if you look at the Bible, you constantly see this idea of singing and song, and a really helpful way is through song. And the words of a song help focus us on truth. And for me, at least this morning, what a great time to remind myself and to refocus on truth about Jesus and uh, the simplicity of what our faith is, and yet the richness and the strength and the depth of what our faith is. And I need to be reminded of that. And times of worship and songs and lyrics of songs help remind me of truth. And individually, I need that. And then there's something corporately about together, being with a group of people who are affirming the same thing, like Brandon said about Jesus, uh, is good and meaningful. And so I'm grateful for that time, grateful for the team. Let us grateful uh, for you guys who sang along and participated together as a community worshiping Jesus. And what we sang about is really huge for today. Today, we're going to continue. I'm going to jump into a minute. And it's going to, it, it is what Paul and what God wanted us to know, right? And today, it's going to be a lot of um, like to do's and, and things. And what we need to remember in any sermon like this is ultimately the reason we want to live our lives in certain ways, a response to what we believe about Jesus. We want to live our lives in a certain way and do certain things and avoid certain things because that's a way we can continue to worship Jesus outside of a Sunday morning singing experience. And the strength that gives us the ability to do the things the scripture tells us to do does not come ultimately from ourselves. Right? It comes from the Holy Spirit that indwells us, who empowers us, who gives us the desire to even do the things that the Scripture tells us to do. So as we jump into the sermon a minute after I pray, and as we're going to hear some do thises and do don'ts, I'm man, grateful for kind of the setup to that as we've just sung about Jesus. And we live our lives the way we'll hear, because it's a way for you and for I to respond in love and appreciation and gratitude to Jesus, and we respond that way through the strength that Jesus has given to us. So that's kind of the overarching idea as we jump into this, and I'm going to pray, and then we'll continue going verse by verse, largely, through the book of Ephesians and see what God has for us this morning. So let me pray. Father, I thank you for this morning helping remind us through those songs about Jesus and what Jesus, the historical Jesus, and yet the divine Jesus, what he did for us. And the story behind that of our sin and our separation, him, Father, willingly coming to be our substitute so that we could be restored to you. Thank you for helping remind us about that. And thank you that this very moment Jesus is ruling as king. And he's sovereign over everything that's going on in the world around us. He's sovereign over everything going on in our individual lives. He is holding everything together. And Father, we're grateful that no matter what it might seem to us, it's all under your control, and you're holding it together, and you're good, and we can trust you, and we have the opportunity to live for you and to worship you. And so this morning, as we move into these things, we continue to pray that we know what you've told us, God, is your word is active, and it's alive. And so we trust the power of the word to have its impact. And we trust the Holy Spirit to meet each of us where we are through your word to help us know how we can live and to give us the desire to live that way so that we can please you. 
um, out of our love for you. So thanks for this time, Father. I pray uh, for us as we press into this, and we pray this in the name of our King Jesus. Amen. Well, maybe some of you who are here this morning or some online, right, maybe you've just finished up this road trip, whether it be an hour or so up the road to Yukon or uh, dropping your kids off to school or whether your kids are like in Hawaii and you made a big trip, right? But all of us at different times in our lives have made different road trips, right? Gone in the car, gone different places. And when you're on a trip like that, you want to avoid certain things that can slow you down. There's lots of different things that can get you off track. There's lots of different things when you're in your car cruising along that can, can get you slowed down off track of the journey that you're on. You, you can, man, you can miss an exit. You can hit a pothole. I remember back in the 90s. I'm getting old. When you start talking about back in the 90s and you think the 90s are like four years ago, you think it's so relevant. It's like, bro, you're an old man. That's all right. I'm a dapper old man. That's what matters. Back in the 90s, I remember I was going with my sweet wife. I don't know if we were married. Yeah, we're a sweet wife. We were married. We were going down to uh, LaGuardia. We came over the Whitestone Bridge, and there was this pothole the size of this auditorium. And man, my Dodge Colt or whatever car I was hitting that time, it like got swallowed up by that pothole. Next thing I know, I have this massive flat tire, the side of Whitestone. New Yorkers are sharing with me the love of Jesus and their thoughts about me being stranded, right? A pothole slowed me down in that moment. You can, you can run off the road in a ditch, right? So I don't know how people do it, but I promise you, people run off the roads into ditches. You can think you're going the right way. And your wife next to you can be telling you, you ain't going the right way. Don't you think we should check the GPS or ask somebody? No, I've made this trip seven, I know, man, you ain't going the right way, right? There's all sorts of different things that get us off track when we're going on a journey, whether it be potholes or missing exits, going the wrong way. And so we want to avoid that happening, most of us, right? Most of us want to get to where we're going and want to have our journey go well. And so that's why we use things, apps like Waze or GPS to help us get there, Man, one of my favorite things on long road trips is I pull out the old school atlas. My wife and I have this one. We look at the little roads. You ask somebody who's gone the way before you. We do all of those things because we want to successfully complete the journey and we want to make sure we avoid those things that can hinder us or slow us down or get us off track on our journey. And all of us this morning, we're on a journey. One of the things we've seen through the book of Ephesians so far is that all of us this morning are on a journey. We're on a journey with God. Some of you listening, some of you here, you may be at the very thinking about getting into the journey, right? Not yet a Christian trying to put it all together and you're take, trying to figure out, do I take the first steps? Others have been walking with God for months, for years, for decades. And, and Paul, through the book of Ephesians, uses this metaphor of a walk. You we may not have called it out as clear as we could have, but several times throughout the book, we've already heard him talking about walk, walk, walk. This idea that you and I are on a walk with God, and on that walk, there's certain things we should do. He's challenged us to walk in three different ways already. In chapter 2, verse 10, he told us, walk in the good works that God has prepared for you. Then later on in, verse, in chapter 4, he told us together as a church to walk in unity. Last week, what he ended with was this idea to walk in love. Lots of different ways for our spiritual journey with God, ways for us to walk. Last week, talking about walk in love, but the reality is just like in road trips, there's things that can come down and, and slow us down in our walk with God. There's things that can get us off track on our walk 
with God. And last week's challenge, right, as we thought about walking with God, was to live a life that reflects God and then live a life of love. And right after that, right after where we ended last week, Paul now moves into these warnings about, hey, but there are some potholes, there are some wrong exits, there are some things that are going to slow you down on your walk that have a life that reflects God and on your walk of a life of love. These are some things that can derail you from your journey. And God doesn't want us to be derailed. God wants us to keep walking and walk on. And so today in, verse, in chapter 5, verses 3 through 8, we're going to see as we're walking, as we're on this journey, as we're taking step by step in faith following God, we're going to see three things to avoid, and we're going to see one attitude to pursue. Three things to avoid, one attitude to pursue. So what's the first thing that Paul is going to warn me about and warn you about? The first thing that Paul says, hey, here's something that you want to avoid in this walk because this will slow you down. This will give you a flat tire. You don't want to end up in this ditch. Well, what's that first thing? Well, let's remember where we ended last week. We ended last week in verse 2 of chapter 5 where it says this. And walk in love, right? There's the walk. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Then the very next verse says this, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. It's kind of this like whiplash hard turn, right? Walk in love and boom, the next thing Paul says, but sexual immorality shouldn't be part of that walk. Man, kind of a strong punch out of not expecting to come. Let's make sure we understand what that phrase sexual immorality means in order that we understand what Paul's saying here and why he's saying it. That, that word sexual morality, it's the Greek word porneia. Porneia. That Greek word porneia, it's this term that kind of, man, refers to sexual acts that are not between a husband and wife. Kind of this broad catch-all box that you put in any sexual act that is outside a marriage between a husband and wife. And what God is saying to these Ephesians, right after he tells them, walk in love, right, walk in love, is he tells them, but make sure that you avoid sexual acts that are not between a husband and wife, sex outside of marriage. Now, if I was writing the Bible, it would not nearly be a good book. If I was writing the Bible, after I just gave this amazing, rich thing about loving and walking in love, I'm not sure that I would have come right after that with saying, and hey, avoid sex outside of marriage. Well, why does God want Paul to do that? Right after the command of live a life that reflects God and walk in love, 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 why does Paul hit this issue? Here's why I think he hits it. Because the attitude that underlies oftentimes, the attitude that underlies sex outside of marriage is completely the opposite of the type of love that Paul just spent last week challenging us to pursue. Last week when we were talking about love, you can go back if you missed the sermon, but but what was under that, right? Paul gave this example of you walk in love and Jesus is the pattern of the type of love that you have. And from that, what we saw is that the love that you're supposed to have for other people and the love that I'm supposed to have for other people, it's unselfish. It's unselfish. 
The love that we're supposed to have is not concerned with what we get. It's a love that loves the other person like Jesus loved other people, even if that person isn't lovable, even if the object of that love isn't beautiful or desirable, we still show love to it. The love that we talked about last week is the love that Jesus had, right? He gave himself up for us. It's a love that gives to the other person. The love that we're supposed to have is unselfish. It loves the object of the love, whether that object is beautiful. It's a love that doesn't focus on whether it gets or what it gets. It focuses on what do I give. And in contrast to that ideal, when you start talking about one-night stands, you start talking about hookups, you start talking about affairs, the... Those things, they don't focus on what can we give. You know what they focus on? They focus on what can we get. Focus on what do we get out of this? What's in this for me? Those type of activities often don't selflessly serve the other person. They typically and often treat the other person as an object to be used for our own selfish purposes. That's what's under, many times, those type of activities. That's what's under. Casual sex, right? Friends with benefits, all that. It's not, what can I give? It's, what am I going to get out of this? Seeking something instead of giving something and treating somebody as an object to be used selfishly is completely the opposite of loving someone selflessly. And what Paul's saying is, man, let's not treat people like objects to be used. Let's treat people as people to be loved. And what God's doing is he's warning us of a counterfeit. He's saying there's a counterfeit that's out there that's going to look really sometimes close to the love that I want you to have that's even going to use phrases about being loved, but it's a counterfeit, and the heart of it is completely different from the love that I want you to pursue, and it can distract us from our walk chasing true love. It can distract us in our walk and living a life that can reflect God, and chasing the counterfeit can sometimes get us in all sorts of ditches, and we wake up one morning, And we think, how did I get here? Some of you know that happens because that's been part of your story. And there's grace and there's forgiveness and there's restoration and there's hope after all that. But there's also periods of sometimes people walk in ditches and land in ditches because they've been chasing hookups, they've been chasing affairs, they've been chasing one-night stands out of selfishness, even if they wouldn't say that. Here's the first thing to avoid. I mean, that's why Paul puts it right after this idea of walk in love because he's like, there's this counterfeit to it. The first thing to avoid is this, sexual counterfeits of love. Sexual counterfeits of love. And and since he put it here, we need to think about it for a second. I guess the question is whether you're in the room this morning or you're listening this morning, you're checking us out on Thursday over your eggs. uh, Whenever you're listening to this, have you been derailed by some sort of sexual relationship with somebody else that isn't improper. 
Is it derailing you right now? Is it hindering your ability to walk well? And if it is, what we've sung about is that very thing is the thing that Jesus died for. That very thing is the thing that Jesus says, look, I will forgive you of it. There is grace after that. There is repentance, right? There's hope. There's new chapters and there's new days and there are new starts. But don't keep getting bogged down in the quicksand of the illusion that that affair is somehow going to make everything all right. Because it's not. It's only going to make it worse in ways we may not even foresee now. But what's important about this, right, just, just maybe if that's not your story, you do not get a hall pass today. I wonder if they still give hall passes virtually. You remember the hall pass? Yes, you asked your teacher, I got to go to the bathroom. Can I get a hall pass? And they, like, give you, a, I don't know, a stick or something. I wonder if they still do that when you're doing hybrid learning. Anyway, the, if your conduct is not the type we're talking about this morning, if that's not something that's impacted you, you don't get a hall pass from the rest of the sermon this morning or the rest of the text because it's not just conduct that can get us off track. It's attitudes that can also get us off track. So what, what, what does he link here in verse 3? He li- links some activity, but sexual immorality, right, must not even be named among you. But then there's another thing, sexual impurity or covetousness. Or covetousness. Covetousness, big fancy word, really what it kind of means is you want something somebody else has. You want something you don't yet have. That, that word that my translation has as covetousness can also be translated as greed. When I first read all this, oh man, Paul's like, it seems just disconnected, but it's so connected because you know what? Greed, covetousness, they have something deeply in common, a core factor with this kind of improper sex we've been talking about, and this, they both focus on selfishly getting for ourselves instead of selfishly giving. Covetousness is focused on what don't I have? What do I want? How can I get more? Completely opposite of thinking about what do I give, which is linked with the type of love that Jesus wants us to have. Here's the second thing to avoid. Greed and covetousness. Big fancy terms for just this constant focus on what you don't have that you want to have. Which do we focus more upon? Do we focus, do you focus, do I focus, do we focus more upon what we want to get, the stuff we want to get, or do we focus more upon how we can use what we already have to serve and to show love to other people? Do we focus more on, I want to get this, what do we want to get, 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 or do we focus on what do we already have, and then how can we use what we already have to serve and to love other people? Do do you know of a need around you? And let's just pause. I'm going to give you three seconds. It's going to feel like two minutes. I'm going to count one Mississippi's in my mind, though. I'm going to give you four seconds, okay? Take four seconds to think about literally, do you know of a need around you. And then think about how can you all use what you already have to help meet that need? Instead of thinking about getting a new job or getting a new car or a bigger yard or whatever, how can you use your time 
your skills, the job you do have, your wisdom, the house you do have, the yard you do have, the car you do have, your presence, not like Christmas presents, but like just being with somebody. How can you use all of those things to serve God well and to love that person well? How can you give out of that instead of just being preoccupied with wanting to get more and more and more? What would that look like? See, when we talk about love, we got to pray. When we talk about walking a life in love, we got to move from just this fluffy idea to, okay, let's put some wheels on that. Let's think about how we selflessly use what we have for the good of other people. And then God gives us one last thing to avoid and to guard against. One kind of last big category that can cause us to end up in a ditch and to get off track in our walk. And here's that last category and those last ideas. Verse 4. It's our speech. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. So let's kind of unpack that a little bit because it may not necessarily mean what it sounds like it means. Filthiness. Interesting. The only time this word is used in the New Testament is this one instance, right? When you look at how it's used in other Greek writings at the time, it refers to speech that causes shame. It refers to speech, words that are dishonoring both to the one who is saying it and the one to whom it's being said. Words that cause shame and dishonor. Foolish talk. Nobody needs to know a lick of Greek to try to guess what that means. You know what it means? It means talk that's foolish. Look at that. $100,000 in a seminary degree and that's the best I got. It means talk that's foolish. Talk that accomplishes nothing. Talk that adds nothing helpful or rich or substantive to a conversation. It's like sweet and low. Don't try to make sweet tea with sweet and low. It will add nothing to it. Get you about a cup and a half of sugar, real sugar, and throw that in there because that adds richness. That adds, oh, that adds substance. Foolish talk is like Charlie Brown's teacher. Words are being said, but it's like wah, wah, wah. Crude joking. Now, interestingly, when you first read that, you might think like, okay, I won't tell dirty jokes. That's not what it's talking about, which was interesting because I didn't know that until I pressed into it. Again, the only time Paul uses this in the New Testament and is better translated, is better understood, sarcastic ridicule. Sarcastic ridicule. You know what it is? It's joking that goes too far. It's, it's something that starts off kind of joking with somebody, but now it's moved into this realm of cutting people down, insulting people, mocking people, not talking about ideas anymore, but bringing other people down. It's humor at the expense of somebody else. Here's right, the third thing to avoid. 
This is so important. And again, what I love about the Bible is if we want to live a life that reflects God and loves other people, what we're asked to do isn't that complicated. Hard to do, but simple concepts. We're asked to do something very simple here. And what God is asking me to do and you to do is as you walk in a life that reflects him, as you walk in love, the third thing to avoid is wrong words. Wrong words. Throughout Scripture, if you're interested in pressing this more, just start reading Proverbs. Read James. And what Paul is connecting with and building upon is this theme throughout Scripture is that what we say, it carries so much weight. And it makes such an impact, both for good and for bad. Our words, your words, can propel you and move you forward in how you're loving other people and your ability to love other people. Or your words can absolutely wipe you out and cause you to lose all sorts of credibility with the people who are around you. Words matter. Words in the book of James, right, described as like, we've seen, if you've watched anything in the news, you've seen pictures of the Golden Gate Bridge illuminated by forest fires, which are ravaging California. And you know what the Bible says? That our words can start and can be like that kind of fire. Our tongue, it talks about this tiny little piece of our body, but yet it's like a rudder on our ship that can move and direct and steer a massive boat in a direction and many times your words they steer you in a direction and once you're steered in that direction it is hard to get us back think about this past week's conversation just think about them Who, who'd you talk to Think about your conversations with other people. Think about your conversations with other people about other people. Think about your emails. Think about as your kid's school started, what you posted on Facebook about what your school district's doing or not doing or your thoughts on that. For those of you who tweet, Think about what you retweeted. Think about what tweets you liked. Here's a little footnote for you. It's for free. I don't know what the, the I felt good because I asked our some of our tech team and they didn't know this either. I don't know what the limit tweets, right? Twitter, some of you know all about it. Some of you are like, I know what you're talking about. That's okay. Twitter, there's a limit on the number of words. It might be 100 characters. Trust me, I have gray in my hair. This is true, what I'm about to tell you. You will not solve a major problem in our culture in 120 words. You won't. I'm telling you, if you like the way your school district's doing it or not doing it, if you like politics or don't, if you're trying, you will you will not win a fight with anybody. You will not make a significant point about a complex issue in 120 words. You'll insult, we'll insult people really well in that amount of words. 
We'll be sarcastic. We'll throw a gas on a fire and just watch it burn. I have ne- I, I'm sure it has happened once. I have never seen Facebook posts or Twitter or nasty emails help resolve an issue of controversy. All it does is pour gas on it. Think about what you did on social media this past week. Think about what that says about Jesus. Think about what that says about, okay, you go to Calvary Church, people who read that. What do they think about people who go to Calvary Church? Now, I don't know, you could have just posted about your grandkids' seven-year-old birthday party, right? That's whatever. But man, I've seen in two, I've, I'm not, well, that doesn't really matter. Forget that. I, I'm not friends with any of you on social media. I'll be your friend in real life. If I'm a friend with you, it's because we were friends like 20 years ago, right? So I don't know what your social media looks like because I'm not following you and you're not following me. What I do know is I've seen in two different churches that I know well, this, this recent, in the past 10 days, recent firestorms between two people within that church fighting over social media. And in one of those churches, I know both parties really well, and both parties are very godly people who love Jesus. But that's not what's coming out in those words. And it doesn't look good. It just doesn't look good. What, what, what did mine look like this week? What did yours look like? And I hit this hard because this is where we're living our lives, many of us. Right? Our words here are, are relatively pleasant to one another. But when you're not here, what are your words? And those words are reflecting something about Jesus. And if we're blowing everybody up on social media and then two days later we're like, hey, you want to come to church with me? I wouldn't want to go to church with you unless you bought me a free breakfast. I might tolerate it for a little bit. See, this is where we live out our faith in the grind of our ordinary lives. And what kind of faith are we living out and what are we saying about Jesus who we claim to worship. Think about what our social media was like. Think about our conversations this week. Think about what you said if you're a kid to your parent. If you're a parent, what did you say to your kids? If you're married, what did you say to your spouse? And did any of those conversations fall into the categories of foolish talk or sarcastic ridicule or improper words? Think about the week ahead, right? What's, what's done is done. What's the week ahead look like? And, and here's some questions. How can we positively use our words? How can we use our words to encourage people, to build each other up, right? To give courage to them. That's what encourage means, to give courage to someone. Someone who's struggling, someone who's discouraged, someone who's hopeless. How can you use your words in an appropriate way to give courage to them? This week coming up, what does it look like for you to alter your social media use? so that you're not just posting Charlie Brown words that don't add any substance to conversations. And if you can't really add substance to conversations, maybe we think about, is it even worth posting about controversial issues? Let's drill it down one more time. Think about someone you're going to talk to this week. One conversation that you already know you're going to have this week. Now think about how in that conversation you can make that conversation positive with words. 
How in that conversation can you use your words to reflect God well? How in your conversation can you use words to love them? One person, one conversation this week, and just thinking ahead to it. Man, how can we leverage our words in a way that we're continuing to walk in love and to walk well on our journey? God's told us what to avoid. God's told us there's pitfalls that you can fall into on your walk with me. They'll end you up in a ditch, and it's not going to be good for you. Watch out for those. Watch out for the pothole and the end of the Whitestone Bridge, right? Avoid those things. And then as we close, he's going to tell us one thing. We're, we're to avoid those, but then one thing that we should do to help us on our walk. And here's what it says, verse 4. So he's already talked about, we've already talked about what to avoid in verses 3 in the beginning part of verse 4. And then the second part of verse 4, he says this. But instead, right, instead of having all that stuff be what you're talking about and what your words are and what your attitudes are and what your conduct is, he says this. But instead of that, let there be thanksgiving. Instead of all that, instead of those pitfalls and potholes, let there be thanksgiving. Here's the attitude to pursue. The attitude to pursue is thankfulness and gratitude. It's interesting, right? We've talked a lot about the attitude of selfishness that's underlied some of these actions. What do we get? What do we get? What do we get? And what Paul's bringing us back to is, look, you've got to focus more on what you have. And be thankful for that. And be grateful for that. Again, it's amazing how many times in Scripture, repeated, it tells us, be thankful. Be thankful. One of the things we're worried about, we're to make those requests known, and then it talks, says, with thanksgiving. Thankfulness is this refrain that runs through Scripture that's supposed to run through our lives because what's under thankfulness is this idea of contentment. And I understand what God has done for me, understand what God has given to me. And I understand how he has blessed me. And I don't want to live a life that takes that for granted. I don't want to live a life that says, well, I'm deserving of that. I want to live a life that says, man, God and his kindness and richness has been good to me. And I can express my humility before him by expressing my thanksgiving and gratitude to him. What is one thing you're thankful for today? And I know some of you watching or some of you here, you've had a lot of hard times in your past. Some of you are in really hard times now. But what you can't escape is that through Scripture, Scripture honestly says, yeah, life's going to be really, really hard sometimes. But still be thankful. But still be thankful. Because in those moments, you still have God. What is one thing that you're thankful for this morning? I'm th and it doesn't have to be the most significant thing. It could just be a blessing that God's given you, right? You might like your yard, your green grass, your flowers. What is one thing that you're thankful for today? And then here's the trick going forward for us. This is our homework for the week. We have to think about a conversation coming up and how we can leverage that for show love with our words. Here's the second thing. 
This week, whatever it is you're thankful, how can we remind ourselves of that throughout the week and then keep coming back to it to be thankful? Whatever God's given you this morning that you're grateful for, throughout the week, how can you be thankful for that and how can you remind yourself of that? What's a trigger you can use? Maybe what would be cool to do is maybe some of us grab our phones and we set our alarms for 121 every afternoon for our alarm to go off. And 121 every afternoon when that alarm goes off, we're like, boom, I'm thankful for my Toyota 4Runner. I want to thank God for it. Maybe we use, we email ourselves. Maybe we have our to-do list app and we use that to remind us. But what is some tangible thing that can trigger throughout the week your thankfulness to God? Because he wants us to be a thankful people and we have so many reasons to be thankful. And this morning, if you're struggling on, I don't really know what to be thankful for and you're a Christian as we wind down, let me tell you one thing that we all have to be thankful for. And you know what it is? It's Jesus. Not flannel graph Jesus. Not just a nice word that we say in church like we don't say unicorns in church. But not just a nice word we say, but a person who was fully man and fully God who gave up everything because he loved you. Who gave up everything because he wanted you to have hope. And he wanted you to have forgiveness. And he wanted you to have restoration. And because of Jesus, we do have hope. And we do have forgiveness. And we do have restoration with the almighty creator God who's made everything. And that is confidence we can take to the bank. And if that ain't something that we can all be thankful for, then I ain't got nothing else to give you. This morning, together, we can and we should be thankful for Jesus. And so we're going to end our time singing about what Jesus has done as who he is. We're going to do it as a community. We're going to do it and remind ourselves to continue to be thankful throughout our week, to watch our words, to avoid sexual counterfeits of love because we love Jesus and we want to walk well. Let me pray. Father, uh, these reminders where we want to pursue these things because we love you. And we want to live a life of love and obedience to you. And we want to live a life that speaks well of you. And we do represent, as Christians, Jesus. And Father, we want to represent him well. And so we need the Spirit's help. Thank you for these very practical things. And thanks for an opportunity now together as a community to sing about and to think about and to be reminded of what Jesus has done for us and why we can be thankful for that. Amen.